Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas on the Rebellions of 1837. Samuel Lount and Peter Matthews. You have been arraigned upon several indictments charging you with high treason. Unhappily for yourselves, you have conspired to bear down the laws by violence and to introduce confusion and bloodshed where nothing should have been found but contentment and peace. You must surely have foreseen that you could not succeed in such an attempt without committing a series of crimes at which your nature should have revolted. It is for this reason that treason is justly regarded as the greatest of all crimes. It strikes at the very root of all social order. The awful sentence of death must follow. The compact satin parliamento legalized their fun. And now they're hanging Sammy Lount and Captain Anderson. And if they catch Mackenzie, they will string him in the rain. And England will erase us if Mackenzie comes again. Brave Canadians, do you love freedom? I know you do. Do you hate oppression? Who dare deny it? Do you wish perpetual peace and a government founded upon the eternal heaven-born principle of the Lord Jesus Christ? Then buckle on your armor and put down the villains who oppress and enslave our country. We cannot be reconciled to Britain. We have humbled ourselves to the Pharaoh of England, to the ministers and great people, and they will neither rule us justly nor let us go. Up then, brave Canadians, get ready your rifles and make short work of it. The British want the country for the empire and the view. The Yankees want the country for a Yankee barbecue. The compact want the country for their merry green domain. They'll all play finders keepers till Mackenzie comes again. On December the 5th, 1837, William Lyon Mackenzie led a band of 800 rebels down Young Street in Toronto. Their intention was to seize the government and declare independence. Two weeks before, in Lower Canada, a makeshift rebel army had won a battle with British regulars in the Richelieu Valley town of Saint-Denis. It was Canada's revolution that never was. Mackenzie was defeated when his troops ignominiously broke and ran. In Lower Canada, the poorly armed and poorly led habitants lost hard-fought battles at Saint-Charles and Saint-Eustache. By the time the fighting finally ended in 1838, whole villages had been burned to the ground, 36 men had been executed, and many more transported to penal colonies in Australia. Tonight, in commemoration of the 150th anniversary of the rebellions, Ideas begins a four-part series by David Cayley on the causes and consequences of the events of 1837. Next week, we'll turn to Lower Canada, but our first two programs, tonight and tomorrow, 
are about Upper Canada. 1837 was a turning point in Canadian history, a moment at which the future shape of the society was set. Was Canada to be British or American? Would order or freedom be its watchword? Was it to be a society based on tradition or revolution? The issue had been fought out in the American War of Independence and re-fought in 1812. In 1837, it was finally settled, and Canada acquired a conservative caste it has never lost. Our revolution was stillborn, but we've never forgotten it, and it has lived on in legend as what might have been and what might still be. Mackenzie was a crazy man, he wore his wig and skew. He'd donned three bulky overcoats in case the bullets flew. Mackenzie talked of fighting while the fight went down the drain. But who will speak for Canada? Mackenzie, come again. Tonight we examine the roots of the Upper Canadian Rebellion personalities and the events which eventually pushed the society into armed struggle in 1837. The time is the mid-1820s. It's market day in York and William Lyon Mackenzie is addressing a crowd of farmers from a wagon. Our foreign commerce is entirely in the hands of the British manufacturers. Our farmers are indebted to our country merchants. Our country merchants are deeply bound down in the same manner and by the same causes to the Montreal wholesale dealers. And thus, a chain of debt, dependence and degradation is begun and kept up, the links of which are fast bound round the souls and bodies of our yeomanry, while the tether stake is fast in British factories. Long live Mackenzie! That Mackenzie was the craziest man you ever did see. He wore a wig, and when he got excited, he was always excited for the matter of that, he would throw it on the floor, or throw it at you if he felt extra pleasant. Every market day when business was all done, and before the farmers went home, there would be a crowd round him as he talked from the top of a wagon. He made great speeches, I can tell you. Well, I happened to be there once through a friend of his who was staying in his house and wanted to hear him and would not go alone. We turned down by the church and waited at the market corner below King Street where Mackenzie was standing in a wagon talking, and you should have seen how the people listened. Perhaps you know that the compact had a lot of hangers-on who would do anything they were told for the soup, clothes, and stuff that was given them, and we used to call them soupets, like the bits of bread you put in soup to sop it up. As Mackenzie was talking, suddenly the vestry door was thrown open and out rushed a crowd of supers, caught hold of the tongue of Mackenzie's wagon and ran off with him towards the bay. He just stood there waiting, I suppose, until the farmers got over their surprise. <laughs> but the supers nearly had him ducked in the bay before the farmers came to their senses. <laughs> William Lyon Mackenzie arrived in Upper Canada from Scotland in 1820. Four years later, he began his first newspaper, The Colonial Advocate, published at Queenston. 
From the first, he was against the government, and he soon gained unfavorable notice from the province's ruling elite. Another reptile of the Gourley breed has arisen amongst us, sneered the Attorney General John Beverly Robinson, referring to an earlier champion of the people's rights, expelled from the province a year before Mackenzie's arrival. Just how unwelcome an addition to their provincial society Upper Canada's ruling class found Mackenzie to be can be judged from an incident which happened in the first year of his newspaper's publication. At the time of the colonial advocate's first appearance, the monument to General Isaac Brock was just being completed on Queenston Heights, the site of Brock's great victory over the Americans in the War of 1812. Into the monument, with General Brock, was put a collection of 1824 memorabilia, including the first issue of the Colonial Advocate. The British governor, Sir Peregrine Maitland, was outraged. He had already felt the sting of Mackenzie's wit. Mackenzie had described the governor's stately progresses from York to Niagara as the migration from the bluebed to the brown, and he ordered a section of the monument demolished and the offending issue of the paper removed so that it could no longer disturb General Brock's final repose. Mackenzie offended Governor Maitland and his courtiers because he identified with a set of popular grievances that went right back to the foundation of Upper Canada in 1791. Most of them came down to a contest between privilege and equal rights, and Mackenzie immediately put himself and his newspaper in the service of reform. I had long seen the country in the hands of a few shrewd, crafty, covetous men, under whose management one of the most lovely and desirable sections of America remained a comparative desert. The most obvious public improvements were stayed. Dissension was created among classes. Citizens were banished and imprisoned in defiance of all law. The people had been long forbidden under severe pains and penalties from meeting anywhere to petition for justice. Large estates were wrested from their owners in utter contempt of even the forms of the courts. The Church of England, the adherents of which were few, monopolized as much of the lands of the colony as all the religious houses and dignitaries of the Roman Catholic Church had had control of in Scotland at the era of the Reformation. Other sects were treated with contempt and scarcely tolerated. A sordid band of land jobbers grasped the soil as their patrimony, and with a few leading officials who divided the public revenue among themselves, formed the family compact and were the avowed enemies of common schools, of civil and religious liberty, of all legislative or other checks to their own will. Other men had opposed and been converted by them. At one and twenty I might have united with them, but chose rather to join the oppressed, and nor have I ever regretted that choice or wavered from the object of my early pursuit. How Upper Canada became the society with which William Lyon Mackenzie collided in the 1820s is a story that goes back to the American Revolution. The first substantial body of white settlers in Upper Canada were Loyalists, those who had taken the losing side in the American War of Independence and paid with their homes and their country. Upper Canada was their refuge and their revenge against the revolution-born United States. The province's first governor, John Graves Simcoe, described it with touching bravado as a dagger 
pointed at the heart of the United States. Horrified reaction to the excesses of the French Revolution hardened this counter-revolutionary cast of mind, and the renewal of war with the Americans in 1812 finally set it in stone. Come all you bold Canadians, I'd have you lend an ear Concerning a fine ditty that would make your courage cheer Concerning an engagement that we had at Sandwich Town The courage of those Yankee boys so lately we pulled down Upper Canada was the only one of Britain's North American colonies which was really threatened in the War of 1812. Not only was the province invaded, the loyalty of its own population was in doubt. In the 20 years since the founding of the province, many non-loyalist Americans had taken up land in Upper Canada, and they now outnumbered the original settlers. It was to them that the American General William Hull appealed when he crossed the Detroit River in 1812 and many responded. The extent of open collaboration with the Americans led the Attorney General, John Beverly Robinson, to institute mass treason trials. These trials, later known as the Bloody Assize, were held at Ancaster in 1814, and on July 20th of that year, eight men were hanged for treason on Burlington Heights. And now we all row home again, each man is safe and sound. May the memory of this conquest all through the province sound. Success unto our volunteers who did their rights maintain. And to our bold commander, brave General Brock by name. The experience of war in the years between 1812 and 1815 gave Upper Canada a sense of itself as a distinct society, but it also left the province's ruling class keenly aware of their exposed and threatened position. They were surrounded on three sides by the vastly superior power and population of the hostile United States. Their own population was half Yankee in its habits and opinions, and sitting athwart their lines of communication with England were the French of Lower Canada. Add to this the fact that as conservatives, they were already disposed to think of social order as something fragile and easily destroyed, and you have a formula for what Northrop Fry calls the garrison mentality. Their insecurity made them jealous of their prerogatives and aggressive in their repression of dissent. And so, when a journalist as combative, as attention-loving, as outspoken, and as radical as William Lyon Mackenzie invaded their merry green domain, sparks were bound to fly. It happened on a day in June in 1826. The compact wrecked Mackenzie's press and left him in a fix. Dressed up as Indians, they struck in plainest light of day. The magistrates just watched as Max Type sank into the bay. <laughs> The first great clash between Mackenzie and the ruling elite was an event which has become a legend, the Types Riot. On June 8th of 1826, 15 of the sons of Upper Canada's first families broke into the offices of the colonial advocate, smashed Mackenzie's press, and scattered his types in the bay. 
Amongst them were several law students of the Attorney General, John Beverly Robinson. What had made them so angry was a series of articles the newspaper had been running. Mackenzie violently disliked the superior airs of the local gentry, and he had decided to take them down a peg by satirizing their aristocratic pretensions. Have the Robinsons anything to boast of in their Virginian descent? Is their boasted loyalty of a purer and more exalted rank than that of those who pursue in this colony a less odious line of conduct? What was their origin and ancestry? Where is the table of their line of descent? Is it a secret in these parts that many, very many, such Virginian nobles as the Robinsons assume themselves were descended from mothers who came there to try their luck and were purchased by their sires with tobacco at prices according to the quality and soundness of the article? And is it from such a source that we are to expect the germ of liberty? Say, rather, is it not from such a source that we may look for the tyranny engendered, nursed, and practised by those whose blood has been vitiated and syphilised by the accursed slavery of centuries? It was strong stuff, and even some of his friends agreed that this time Mackenzie's wit had overcome his judgment. But whether his slander justified the young gentlemen of York in acting like hooligans was another question. Mackenzie instituted civil proceedings against the culprits and won enough in damages to put his bankrupt paper back on its feet financially. Attorney General Robinson was criticized for not laying criminal charges or publicly rebuking his students, and the incident entered the long litany of popular grievances against the family compact. The Types riot was not an isolated incident. It was part of what historian Paul Romney has called a pattern of political violence against opponents of the regime, a pattern pointing straight to the rebellion. Sometimes this repression was unbelievably petty, as in the case of Captain John Matthews. Matthews, a retired British officer and reform member of the legislature, was deprived of his pension and deported to England for asking a group of American actors to sing Yankee Doodle and Hail Columbia at a New Year's Eve theater party. At other times, it was more violent. George Rolfe, the brother of reform leader Dr. John Rolfe, was tarred and feathered by a gang of Tory vigilantes. And in Hamilton, in 1832, Mackenzie was lured out of his hotel by a Tory magistrate, William Johnson Kerr, who then had him beaten up by hired thugs. One of the reasons Mackenzie attracted so much attention was the popularity of his newspaper, The Colonial Advocate. In primitive Upper Canada, says Mackenzie's biographer, Bill Kilborn, the newspaper was one of the few sources of entertainment and virtually the only medium for the circulation of political ideas. The role of that newspaper, the colonial advocate and his subsequent papers, has never been duplicated. The, the reading of the newspaper, uh, sometimes around the, the parlor or in the firelight or whatever it was, was a community event. Uh, and the only other print they really had, most of them, was, if they were wealthy enough, the family Bible. Sometimes it was the only medium of entertainment, other than uh, sermons from a stump preacher. And, uh, of course, in the Colonial Advocate, you get a marvelous range of stuff from Mackenzie's impassioned speeches uh, about politics and the evils of whoever was the enemy of the day, 
uh, as far as who the enemy was, he was a bit like John Diefenbaker. He changed from day to day. There was always them, the bad guys out there, and the good guys w were spoken for by McKinsey. But you not only get the political stuff in the journals, he would reprint things uh, like a magpie or a squirrel. He would build his nest from all over the world. He, he, he kept the readers in touch with dispatches from Europe and America. He did these marvelous pastoral pieces on the life of, of Upper Canada. In fact, they're, they're, they were put together in a book called Sketches, which is a lovely treasure trove of, of beautiful writing. You know, our version of uh, Virgil's eclogues, I suppose. There, there was everything there. And, and you have to, I think the key thing to Mackenzie is that if, if you were poor or you had grievances against the government, he was on your side. Mackenzie was a populist and he connected with a strain of bitterness and resentment that ran through the settler population of Upper Canada. It was back-breaking work clearing land and establishing a farm, and those who did it were not very sympathetic to the aristocratic heirs of the elite. Mackenzie spoke for these pioneer farmers. He considered them the province's true aristocracy, and he wrote about them with deep feeling. He was a romantic, in his furious denunciations of privilege, you can sometimes hear the prophetic cadences of William Blake, and in his sweeter, more pastoral moods, the reverence of his countryman, Robbie Burns, for the common people. The supper consisted of viands, the growth and produce of the place. On the table were placed curds and cream, cheese, butter, new potatoes, new bread, a flour, the growth and manufacture of 1831. Caledon made wine, sugar of the Canada maple. After supper, in accordance with the time-honored usage of his country, Mr. Manorton took down the venerable folio Bible, his partner in life's pains and pleasures. His family of eleven gathered round him, and in this distant wilderness where the solemn strains of Scottish melody had ascending from his lowly roof, in honour and praise of the almighty creator, preserver and bountiful benefactor of the world. The eldest son then read a chapter from the sacred volume, and the family of the settler concluded the services of the day by bowing the knee in prayer to their God. Surely this is happiness on earth. The country people of Upper Canada had long-standing grievances. Most of them had to do with religion, with land, or with the power and privileges of non-elected officials. The province's constitution was described by the first lieutenant governor, John Graves Simcoe, as the image and transcript of the British constitution, and it proved a mixed blessing on an agricultural frontier. The fundamental principle of the British constitution was a balance between aristocracy and democracy, between a lords and a commons. The problem, as far as applying such a constitution in Upper Canada went, was the complete absence of an aristocracy. There were no earls of Owen Sound or dukes of Napanee, and though the constitution actually allowed for it, none were ever created. What the settlers got instead was an administrative elite dependent on government for its social standing, and they resented it.
Land was liberally granted to these officials, as it was to retired military officers and to the loyalists and their descendants. This land was often held idle for speculative purposes, so new immigrants were often forced to settle in inferior situations, while the better land lay unimproved around them and cut them off from their neighbors. Well, you sell all you owe to come to this land For the promise of riches and an acre of land But it's all gone to Robinson and to Spalvent Oh, the hard times in Canada In Canada, very hard times In the 1820s, the grievances of the settlers began to coalesce into a political movement for reform. And in the 1824 election, this embryonic reform party achieved a majority in the House of Assembly for the first time. There were two major issues on which the reformers cut their teeth. The first was the Alien Bill, a piece of legislation introduced by Attorney General John Beverly Robinson, which the reformers believed would deprive the post-loyalist American settlers of their political rights. The reformers eventually won the day by a successful appeal to the colonial office in London. The second great issue which made the reform movement was religion, and it centered on the privileges of the Anglican Church. Before Jehovah's awful throne, ye nations bow with sacred joy. Know that the Lord is God alone. He can create and he destroy. It's Sunday, and the scene at St. James on King Street confirms the old saw that the Church of England is the Tory party at prayer. Here's the Attorney General, John Beverly Robinson, the Solicitor General, Henry John Bolton, the Jarvises, the Jones, the Macaulays, and mounting the pulpit is their former schoolmaster and spiritual mentor, the Reverend John Strong. My text this morning is from chapter 13 of Paul's epistle to the Romans. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. One is formed to rule, another to obey. Subordination in the moral world is manifest. And this appearance of nature indicates the intention of its author. A love of order is not only essential to the tranquility, but to the very being of any state. It becomes the foundation of mutual faith and confidence and security. When we behold an indifference to the observance of the laws, and a want of reverence to magistrates and superiors. We may consider these as symptoms fatal to the true liberty of that country. It was John Strawn's belief that the best guarantee of such order 
was an established church, and he fought tenaciously to preserve the official position of the Church of England. The Constitutional Act of 1791 had endowed the Anglican Church with the seventh part of all public lands in the province, an immense amount. These clergy reserves, as they were called, became a barrier to settlement, a hated symbol of Anglican privilege, and a source of endless political vexation. A subsequent act of the legislature had also stipulated that only Anglican ministers could solemnize marriages. Unfortunately, there were very few Anglicans in Upper Canada. Richard Cartwright estimated in the 1790s that they were no more than a tenth of the population, and the Americans who came after were far more likely to be Methodists, Baptists, or Congregationalists than they were to be members of the Church of England. All these sects bitterly resented the disproportionate power of the established church, and they were hardly mollified by John Strawn's tactless attacks on them. The issue of Anglican privilege came to a head in 1828, following a visit to England by Dr. Strawn. While he was there, he submitted to the colonial secretary a rather fanciful account of the relative strengths of the various Protestant denominations in Upper Canada, a document that subsequently became notorious. I take the liberty of enclosing for the information of Lord Godrich an ecclesiastical chart of the province of Upper Canada, which I believe to be correct for the present year, 1827, and from which it appears that the Church of England has made considerable progress and is rapidly increasing. The people are coming forward in all directions, offering to assist in building churches and soliciting with the greatest anxiety the establishment of a settled minister. The tendency of the population is towards the Church of England, and nothing but the want of moderate support prevents her from spreading over the whole province. Two or three hundred clergymen living in Upper Canada in the midst of their congregations and receiving the greater portion of their income from funds deposited in this country must attach still more intimately the population of the colony to the parent state. Their influence would gradually spread. They would infuse into the inhabitants a tone and feeling entirely English. And acquiring by degrees the direction of education which the clergy of England have always possessed, the very first feelings, sentiments, and opinions of the youth must become British. The dishonesty of Strawn's chart excited outrage throughout Upper Canada, and his situation was hardly improved by the fact that while in England he had also gained a charter for an Anglican university. This charter did have some liberal features. Admission was to be open to all, but they were obscured by Strawn's widely reported remark that it was to be a missionary college for the Church of England. Upon his return, he found, as he put it himself, that the floodgates of a most licentious press were opened upon me and the most rancorous calumnies and abuses poured out against me. Eventually, he was censured by a committee of the legislature. In addition to the Methodists, there are in the province several denominations of Christians who are more numerous than the members of the Church of England. Compared with the whole population, the members of the Church of England must therefore constitute an extremely small proportion. It would be unjust and impolitic to exalt this church by exclusive and peculiar rights above all others of His Majesty's subjects who are equally loyal, conscientious, and deserving. A country in which there is an established church from which a vast majority of the subjects are dissenters 
must be in a lamentable state. The committee hope that this province will never present such a spectacle. It is well known that there is in the minds of the people generally a strong and settled aversion to anything like an established church and to invest it with peculiar rights or privileges, civil or pecuniary, from which other sects were excluded, would excite alarm throughout the country. And the actual execution of such a measure would produce the most general and lasting discontent. I'll be a Tory in Upper Canada. I'll be responsible. I'll keep my council dull. All reformers down I'll pull. I'll fill the province full of the sons of old John Bull. I'll break each rebel skull. I'll be head upon the throne. I'll be the Constitution. I'll be a Tory. I'll be a Tory. I'll be a Tory in Upper Canada. The Tories of Upper Canada, like John Strong or John Beverly Robinson, were in a paradoxical position. As loyalists, their allegiance was to the British Constitution. But here they were in a remote wilderness, a dismal wood, as John Strong said, bearing virtually no resemblance to Britain. In England, Toryism was the defense of an existing social order. In Upper Canada, it was a program for the creation of such an order, and out of rather unpromising materials. It was, said Robinson, a thankless and hopeless task trying to persuade Scotch Presbyterians and Yankee Methodists to accept our most excellent establishment in church and state. It was this contradiction between ideology and environment which gave Upper Canadian conservatism its somewhat strident tone. What men like Strawn and Robinson called the natural order of things was really the social order of 18th century England, and it was nowhere evident in Upper Canada. Their natural order of society really depends upon an aristocracy. You don't have an aristocracy in Upper Canada. You never come close. Historian Robert Fraser. They have the language of the gentry, but they don't have independent country estates. You know, these people depend, for the most part, on government for what they consider independent income. So you have the courtiers adopting the language, really, in, in some ways, of country independence as it comes out of the, the 18th century England. So their worldview, their idea of the political order, which is that there is a natural hierarchy, that there ought to be subordination and deference, that there ought to be political inequality, that the democratic part of the Constitution ought to be strictly limited, is anachronistic, almost right from the start, and totally untenable in Upper Canada. By the 1820s, people like Robinson understand that. And at that point, the Constitutional Act simply becomes the only line of defense, because it's the Constitutional Act which means that they have two non-elective institutions which are part of the Constitution, the Legislative Council and the Executive Council. And if you do away with that, you've had it. The gentry of Upper Canada had neither titles nor significant wealth. What they had was patronage, the control of appointed offices, and they used it to consolidate their rule throughout the province. But by the 1820s, this rule was beginning to be challenged by an alliance of outgroups who wanted access to power and patronage themselves, 
the focus of their attack was the House of Assembly. January 1829. A crowd gathers outside the Parliament buildings at the foot of York Street as horse-drawn sleighs deliver the legislators for the opening of Parliament. Amongst the new members is William Lyon Mackenzie, elected by a comfortable margin for the riding of York. The Tories can barely contain their indignation at having to sit in the same room with him, and Mackenzie is quick to provoke them. The Legislative Council demanded out of the public chest last winter for silk curtains, velvet for their throne, tassels, hangings, turkey carpeting, chairs of steet, perfumery, gilding for a crown to their throne, presents to their servants, douceurs to some of themselves, and decorations for their chambers, a sum of money equal to about $12,000, and got it too without a murmur or even an inquiry, three out of every four of your sapient representatives sanctioning the act of plunder, of robbery, I might say, but I like to use mild expressions. Mackenzie's very presence in the legislature was an affront to his enemies, and they eventually managed to have him expelled. A by-election was called for New Year's Day of 1832. Mackenzie ran and was easily re-elected. Three cheers for Mackenzie! Huzzah! 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 That night, his supporters gathered at the Red Lion Inn. They presented Mackenzie with a gold medal, and then a procession of 131 sleighs set off down Young Street. One sleigh carried a small printing press on which Mackenzie's New Year's message was being run off. Another two-story sleigh carried the hero in his triumph, first to the legislature and then to his home. Mackenzie, says his biographer Bill Kilborn, was never to know a happier day. Mackenzie was not back in the legislature for long before the Tories expelled him again. Three times they threw him out, and three times the voters of York returned him. The charge against him was libeling the assembly. It appears, Mr. Speaker, that I must not call things by their right names in my paper. I but either praise the most undeserving of public men, be silent as death, or go back to the freeholders of the country with the brand of a false, atrocious, and malicious libeler on my forehead. If such shall be your measure of justice, I will not shrink from the appeal to the country. Not one word do I retract. I offer no apology. For what you call libel, I believe to be the solemn truth, fit to be published from one end of the province to the other. Be assured, Mr. Speaker, that were every representative on this floor to join in condemning the articles you have selected as libelous, I would republish them the following Thursday. The rough treatment of Mackenzie in the House of Assembly was not an isolated incident. Wherever reform reared its head, there was a Tory backlash. In 1832, for example, 
a group of reformers circulated a grievance petition in the Talbot settlement. This was the personal fiefdom of one Colonel Talbot, a veteran of the American Revolution who had been granted a large tract of land on the shore of Lake Erie. Here he had accepted settlers in exchange for further grants of land. Dissent within his semi-feudal domain was intolerable, and when he got word of the grievance petition, he called a meeting of his own. The St. Thomas Journal described the scene. About half past 11 a.m., the venerable father of the Talbot settlement, accompanied only by his servant, was met by the escorts on the summit of the hill opposite the village, where his advance was greeted by the most enthusiastic and continued bursts of cheering. The sight now became truly imposing. The assembled multitude manifested the most joyous feelings upon the honorable colonel's entrance into the village. An amateur band struck up with the British grenadiers. The Highland pipes, too, sent forth their martial notes, and everything tended to inspire the friends of the Constitution with the fullest confidence that their laudable exertions would this day be crowned by a glorious triumph. The Honorable Colonel addressed the meeting in a strain both pathetic and eloquent, commenting in strong terms on the conduct of those individuals who had been foremost in fomenting discontent. When I undertook the formation of this settlement between 20 and 30 years ago, it was in the hope that I should have none other but sound British subjects for my settlers so as to ensure peace and good fellowship amongst us. And I took every pains to select characters of that description. But in spite of all my vigilance, I am sorry to find I have not been successful, for some black sheep have slipped into my flock, and very black they are. These, uh, which I shall call for shortness, rebels, commenced their work of darkness under the cover of organizing damned cold water drinking societies, where they met at night to communicate their poisonous and seditious schemes to each other and to devise the best mode of circulating the infection so as to impose upon and delude the simple and the unwary. After practicing this game, they fancied they had acquired strength and assumed a more daring aspect and appeared openly under the mask of grievance petition. I have never seen or heard the particular contents and was it placed before me. I should not take the trouble of reading it, being aware that it was a thing of trash and sedition, founded on falsehood, fabricated for the purpose of creating discontent and, in the end, rebellion in this province. May God, of his infinite goodness and mercy, bless and preserve all you that are true British subjects and keep your hearts and minds untainted by sedition or corruption. Cheers for Colonel Talbot! Huzzah! 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 Undeterred by the Colonel's bombast, the reformers continued to try and organize, but their meetings were consistently broken up. One such gathering was the subject of a letter from Talbot to Peter Robinson, Commissioner of Lands and brother to John Beverly, in January of 1833. My rebels endeavored to hold a meeting at St. Thomas on the 17th, but they were frustrated by my loyal guards who routed the rascals at all points and drove them out of the village like sheep. 
numbers with broken heads leaving their hat behind them, the glorious work of old Colonel Hickory. In short, it was a most splendid victory, and I scarcely think they will venture to call another meeting, at least not at St. Thomas. Ever truly yours, Thomas Talbot. Now will be the word, pray the field to contention, pray the land to misrule and the friends a dissension. He's gained the ways as an ancient befitting our claims to support in the councils of Britain. In April of 1832, William Lyon Mackenzie sailed for England on the packet Ontario. He went as the agent of local reform organizations all over the province, and he carried with him petitions bearing nearly 25,000 signatures. Despite his expulsions from the legislature and the violent attacks on reform groups around the province, he embarked with a high heart. The political tide was running towards reform in England, and he felt sure that once the colonial office understood the grievances of Upper Canada, they would remedy them. Stop the Duke! England in 1832 was in a ferment. A bill to radically reform the British electoral system was being held up in the House of Lords by forces under the leadership of the Duke of Wellington. Mackenzie wrote home that he had seen the hero of Waterloo pelted with mud and fish heads in the streets of London, and Tory peers hissed, hooted and groaned as they entered their carriages. When the Lords finally passed the bill under the virtual threat of revolution, Mackenzie was there. I had the very great satisfaction to witness last Monday night the English Reform Bill come forth from the fiery ordeal of the House of Lords uninjured. Having obtained the order of a member of the House of Lords for admission to the gallery on the eventful night, I went as early as four o'clock and obtained an excellent seat immediately opposite the throne. It was well that I did so. Had I been a few minutes later, the order would have been of no avail, as the gallery holds only eighty persons, and each nobleman being entitled to give an order for the admission of one person, it was filled to overflowing almost immediately. At length the lords assembled, and Canadians will rejoice to know that the bill passed third reading unimpaired in its great leading principles and undiminished in its means of contributing to the advancement, the welfare, peace and prosperity of this great and glorious nation. The Reform Bill was passed under considerable pressure from an aroused and sometimes armed citizenry a fact which Mackenzie surely noted. But meanwhile, he was off to Whitehall to meet the colonial secretary, Lord Godrich. Here he found a surprisingly receptive audience, and by November, Godrich was ready to act on some of Mackenzie's suggestions. He sent a dispatch to the lieutenant governor, Sir John Colborne, censuring the assembly for its behavior towards Mackenzie and ordering various reforms in the post office, the Bank of Canada, and elsewhere. When the legislature balked at the colonial secretary's instructions, he dismissed the attorney general, Henry John Bolton, 
and the Solicitor General, Christopher Alexander Hagerman, from office. The York Tories were outraged. Their paper, The Courier, inveighed against ignoramuses in the colonial office and made veiled threats to seek independence. John Strawn was even more explicit. A deputation of one or two resolute men should be sent home to tell the ministry that if they continue to attend to such persons as Ryerson and Mackenzie and to break down the Constitution, the Conservative Party will turn round upon them and first trample on the necks of those miscreants and then govern ourselves. Sweet as these wounded cries must have been to Mackenzie, his triumph proved extraordinarily short-lived. The government in England changed. The colonial secretary changed. Hagerman was given his job back, and Bolton was rewarded with the post of Chief Justice of Newfoundland. Mackenzie returned to Canada a sadder and a wiser man. Shortly after Mackenzie's return, the first serious cracks began to appear in the reform movement. Edgerton Ryerson, the editor of the Methodist paper, The Christian Guardian, had also been in England, and he had been sending back to Canada his impressions of English society. These revealed him to be a moderate Tory, critical of the radicals with whom Mackenzie was allied. Mackenzie, always intemperate, took violent umbrage. The Christian Guardian, under the management of our reverend neighbour Edgerton Ryerson, has gone over to the enemy, press, types and all, and hoisted the colours of a cruel, vindictive Tory priesthood. The contents of the Guardian of tonight tells us, in language too plain, too intelligible to be misunderstood, that a deadly blow has been struck at the liberties of the good people of Upper Canada by as subtle an adversary in the guise of an old familiar friend as ever crossed the Atlantic. The Americans have their Benedict Arnold and the Canadians have their Ryerson. But he and his allies, the church and state gentry, shall now have me in their rear. The split between Mackenzie and the Methodists was a sign that the old alliances of the 1820s were breaking down under the pressures of new circumstances in the 1830s. Judging radicalism to be the high road to atheism, the Methodists began to align themselves with the government. New immigrants, like the Protestant Irish, also swelled the conservative alliance, and they were arriving in great numbers. In 1827, tiny York calculated its population at under 2,000, when it was renamed Toronto in 1834, it counted over 9,000. Mackenzie, for his part, was growing more radical. The colonial office had already proved an uncertain ally. The power of his enemies was undiminished. He now began to think in terms of independence and an elected rather than an appointed government. Confrontation was on the horizon. It would come in 1837, after the appointment of Sir Francis Bondhead as governor and after the disastrous election of 1836, and Mackenzie would be ready. I have been in England. I've seen the usage Ireland met with, the promises made today to be broken tomorrow the instructions promulgated in the spring by one colonial minister to be retracted in the fall by another. 
In short, I have seen enough to convince me that we shall continue to have the very worst possible government in Upper Canada until we get rid of the system which binds us. I therefore am less loyal than I was. David Cayley's account of the events leading to the rebellion of 1837 in Upper Canada continues on ideas tomorrow, when he'll tell the story of the rebellion itself. Heard in tonight's program was Chris Wiggins as William Lyon Mackenzie, with other voices by Sandy Webster, David Fox and John Jarvis. Original music was arranged and performed by Ian Bell and Anne Lederman of Muddy York. On the production team were Laurie Clayton, Lorne Tulk, Bill Robinson and Bernie Lucht. We'd like to give special thanks to historians Michael Cross, Robert Fraser, Lillian Gates, Bill Kilborn, Paul Romney, Ron Stagg, Bill Westfall and Sid Wise for their generous assistance in the production of this program. I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night.